You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for episode 9. In this episode, I got to sit down with Bill from In Situ Ecosystems, and we had a great conversation about what goes into a vivarium and what set his vivariums apart from all the others out there. Now, before we get into tonight's episode, I wanted to give a couple of shout-outs, specifically to the listeners in Australia. Um, I get podcast stats from time to time on how the podcast is doing, and it's really great knowing that I'm able to reach an audience that's that far away. So if you're listening to me in Australia, thanks a lot. Love the support. And for everyone else, best way to follow me is at Amphibicast on Instagram. And if you have comments, questions, a topic you'd like to get into, email me at Amphibicast at gmail.com. So here we go. So everyone, I'd like to welcome Bill from In Situ Ecosystems. Bill, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing today? Oh, good. Yeah. Hanging in there, hanging in there. Um, I want to yeah. thank you for you know, agreeing to do this show. I've been really looking forward to getting someone on who has a, you know, a vivarium based business and, you know, your vivariums are just like off the charts, like really, really impressive. So, um, you know, just real quick, why don't you just just tell us your story? Um, I mean, you, you actually started off as an aerospace engineer, right? And you kind of developed that into a vivarium designing career. Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh, about 30 years in the aerospace industry, where I've developed uh, different composite structures for commercial airplanes. And uh, it's actually how, what led me into the, the frog hobby. I uh, was traveling a lot. I couldn't, I was coming home. There was nothing alive in the, in the house when I got home. And uh, I said, gosh, what do I do to uh, bring life into my house? You know, cause I travel so much. And the answer was uh, frogs. <laughs> If you can imagine that. And oh, I can uh, imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like, okay, what do I have to do to get something to, to live here? And the answer was, well, a terrarium that's on some kind of an automatic timing and misting system and and frogs. And so <laughs> that's what it started out. Uh, that's what started the ball rolling. So um, there you are. <laughs> Pretty cool. Now, yeah. where I live... Um, on Long Island, we actually have um, Northrop Grumman used to have headquarters here. Did you ever yeah. have any dealings with them at all? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, actually back, uh, let's see, back around the 2006, 2007, I was actually talking to them about technology. I eventually sold to the South Africans. Really? And uh, Yeah, which is actually part of the story. Um, uh, not Grumman part, but the South African part. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I used to used to get involved with all those companies back east. Now, going on to South Africa, that was that the first place that you traveled outside of the U.S. Oh no, no. no. Well, I mean, no, I no. I meant like in the context of like you know before you started developing vivariums. No, no. Uh, well, actually, sort of. What happened is I uh, created some technology for making uh, commercial aircraft uh, composite structures, and I spent about 12 years on it. And in the last four years, we finally got to the point where it was ready for sale to a tier one, and the South Africans decided to jump in and take it. And so then the next four years was spent going back and forth to South Africa, and then finally, uh, two years ago, they said, hey, would you mind spending a year with me or you, we're, you're with us down here to kind of finish this up? 
And so I did. And when I got there, I was surrounded by thermoplastics engineers who were looking for things to do after work. And one thing led to another. My my passion for building vivariums and trying to get them to work turned into a full-scale project, which was now become in situ. So there you go. Pretty cool. Now, just, just for anyone who might not necessarily be familiar with the term, um, just explain what in situ means for anyone who, I mean, I know what it is, but it might be better to hear it come from you. Well, biologists are probably going to correct me because I'm not a biologist, but essentially what it means is, you know, a uh, um, animal or plant in its natural environment, right? So if you are in the forest and you see an animal or plant, it is in situ, right? And uh, the the name for a company is is our effort to try and tell people we are really trying hard to create environments like you're going to find them in nature. And so that's what inspires our design and, and our design efforts. So that's, 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 that's our approach. I mean, I think that a lot of the, um, as far as the hobby is gone, especially the dart frog mm-hmm. hobby, the resources that people have now in terms of being able to create that type of an environment in their home, which in the past was just, you know, and when I say past, I'm going to say like the average person in say like the seventies, eighties, early nineties. I used to go to the Bronx zoo when I was a kid and I would look at some of the enclosures, like especially in, in the reptiles. And I think to myself like, wow, I can only imagine what must've gone into this. And as an average keeper, you really didn't have access to, you know, raw materials and whatnot. I mean, no one had ever done it before. And now it seems to be this, like, this cutting-edge industry that almost has become, like, like a standard. Like, you don't you don't really keep things in these really, sim- really simplistic terrariums anymore. No, I tell you what. Uh, when I started building my first terrarium here in, what, uh, 2014, I think it was, um, I, I got on YouTube and I was I was looking at all the available videos, some of them are still, you know, at the top of the charts because they're still good. But um, as I was watching and I went out and I bought my, my first terrarium, which is, was an Exoterra. And I wanted to do a water feature because everybody wants to do a water feature when they first start. And I remember just studying and studying, trying to figure out how do I do this right? And and finally, I said, okay, step by step by step, I, I built this terrarium. And at the end of it, I thought to myself, my God, how do ordinary people do this? You know, I'm an, I'm an <laughs> yeah. engineer that's got all this design and production experience. And I'm sitting here struggling with it. How do they do this? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it kept vexing me for years. It vexed me. It vexed me. I, uh, I was, uh, you know start with that one and i said okay i'm going to try and build my own now and i did and and it ended up a sloppy mucky mess and then the next one ended up a sloppy mucky mess and finally i went to um the netherlands and i visited red Schoten over in hairland and i and i saw his terrariums and all of a sudden i realized you've got to get this stuff to drain and as I, I traveled to Peru and I looked at uh, different environments that made me, uh, made me realize the real, the real 
essence of a rainforest environment is that everything drains constantly and has pure water that is cycling through it. And that the more pure water and, and cycling you can do, the more likely you're going to end up with something that actually approximates the rainforest. And, um, and so that kind of inspired, you know, our design approach with in situ. Right. So oh, definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, I remember my first build, I, I had done, uh, people use the term bioactive now. And, um, I, I have mixed people who know me know I have mixed feelings about the word. I won't get into that now, but I kept naturalistic vivariums for quite a while before anyone really knew what it was. And right, that was right. really one of the problems that I had right off the bat was, was this the substrate and conventional wisdom told us years ago, well, if you want to have something that's got a lot of humidity, you have to have soaked substrate. And that was my mistake for quite a while. And then recently yep. I, I actually spoke to someone who was, was from Europe and this person said, well, you don't need the soak substrate. You just need, you need high humidity, but remember you have to offer these. And this is, I'm sorry, this is, I should have prefaced this. This refers to dart frogs, but you need leaf litter and the leaf litter should be dry. So by having soak substrate, you're not really giving the animal an accurate, you know, um, an accurate captive recreation of what it would normally experience. So I, I had the same problems. I had substrate that was, was waterlogged, and I mean, you, you stuck your finger into the bottom, and it just, it, it smelled all like anaerobic. And then the more I got to discuss it with people, I, you know, figure out drainage, and I started with um, just gravel. And then I realized that, well, I don't really need to make my terrarium 80 pounds from having like like two inches or three <laughs> inches of pea gravel in it. And yeah. then I discovered yeah. the leaka balls. And the, you have to kind of think outside the box. Like the, the leaka balls I actually got from a, um, well, it's a head shop. It was a shop that they sold stuff for hydroponic growing. But you know what, I'm, you know what I mean? No one was growing tomato yeah, plants yeah. with this stuff. But it, it worked right. very, very well. Now, you did a lot of traveling. I mean, did you were you able to see dart frogs in their natural habitat during your during your travels? Oh, sure, of course. That was the whole purpose of going, you know, to Peru when I've gone is to go find these animals. Like, for example, I wanted to start breeding Cerancis Highland. I couldn't I wanted to figure out why people were having problems breeding Cerancis Highlands in the wild. And so I, uh, I went and I found Josh Allen, who took me on a tour of where they actually live. And, you know, they're up around 2,000 meters or about 6,000 feet, which is not freezing cold like it would be here, but it's cooler and it's constantly wet. It's a downpour. And, um, and the rain and the water is always just washing off. And um, I said, you know, these frogs, all frogs if you want them to breed, need to be wet. And this business of spritzing a vivarium for 20 seconds, three times a day, isn't their natural breeding conditions. Their natural breeding conditions are, turn it on for an hour, five times a day, <laughs> you know, and then that'll get them going. And, and sure enough, I came back and I started experimenting with the, the highlands that I had and turned on the water, designed a terrarium that could actually take all that water. And when I realized 
you know, it really is just as simple as keep them wet and keep the plants wet, keep the nitrates off the leaves, design a drainage system that um, will allow the runoff and not become anaerobic. And the same thing with all of your, your hardscaping, you know, um, all of a sudden the terrariums got fresh smelling. They didn't stink there. There the anaerobic bacteria pretty much disappeared and it, it started working, you know? So that's, that's kind of what, what, you know, there's a cycle of learning that I had to go through to kind of get to where we're at within situ. And that's what drove the design. I, I, I do like, like what you said about 15 seconds of misting and you're absolutely right. I, I hand mist some of my tanks. I do hand mist, but I, I did put in a misting system for four of them. But I actually I don't have other than the drainage layer other than the drainage layer. Excuse me. I don't I don't have a bulkhead drilled because um, right. I was kind of intimidated about cutting glass. And anybody I, I do know how to cut glass. I cut it for work and whatnot. But um, anybody who's ever tried to drill glass and then finds out that the glass is tempered gets a very, very oh, yeah. unpleasant surprise. So, I mean, oh, for anybody yeah, yeah. out there, yeah. tempered is almost like um, like shatterproof. And if you want to tell if it's tempered or not, the trick is if you put on, it's going to sound ridiculous, but you put on 3D glasses, you'll almost see like, um, almost like a rainbow through it. But what I paid for them, I didn't want to kind of play around with it, but I ended up actually having to lower my misting system schedule to kind of, mediate the amount of, of, of evaporation and drainage that I could handle in those terrariums. Right, right, right. See, that's, that's the kind of the trick. One of the things about like, for example, when you um, have an egg crate system, right? Uh, imagine an egg crate system where you're, um, you're putting your substrate above it and everything drains into it. And maybe you have it drilled, you know, with a bulkhead in it so that it'll drain off. Another thing that happens is when you mist, the water drops into it, but uh, you can't really force it to do a water exchange because you have a gallon of water in there. In order for you to spray a gallon of water, you're going to be spraying for an hour to get an hour, a gallon of water in there to do a water exchange. And so one of the things that we did with our design is we create this slope deck that has a trough. And if you put uh, any kind of media in it, the, the amount of, of stagnant water that's in the terrarium is about a cup and a half. Really? So, yeah. So when you mist for more than three minutes, you've completely exchanged the water in the terrarium. Completely. That's pretty right? cool. Yeah. So there's no stagnation. That's another key with, with rainforest is there's nothing is stagnant. There is no such thing as a flat surface. Almost everything points either downhill or uphill. And, and unless you're in a puddle, right, it's going to drain away. Everything is going to drain away, right? So so that was another thing we tried to do is trying to, to solve that mystery of how do you do natural drainage? How do you set up natural drainage? And that's what we did. Interesting. Right? I mean, can yeah. you can you tell us some of the features that make your enclosures unique? Yeah, yeah. So the uh, we just talked about the drainage. I think the drainage is actually really critical. And um, 
and some people think you don't need it and some people think you do what i what i say is okay whether or not you do or you don't you can turn these misting systems on and let them run for as long as you want and the plants and the frogs love it and um and so that's kind of like the bottom line right um so the drainage is real important another thing is circulation uh you can't have a tornado inside the vivarium, um, you know, dry things out. And so you have to have a circulation system that's, that's strong enough that the plants will react to it, but not so strong that it dries everything out. So getting that circulation system, at, you know, tuned in is really, really important. And what we found is we have some waterproof fans that we've kind of designed into our, our vivarium and they, they provide the circulation system and we've had, you know, our fans running constantly for over a year and the plants in the vivarium does just fine with it. Right. We get clear glass. Our glass is clear and not foggy. And so that's, that's a definite plus for our, our terrariums is having that humidity, but not having all that fog on the glass. Right. Now, are you looking to do almost like, like a full air exchange inside the terrarium using the fans or you're just looking to circulate the air that's already in there? The air that's in there uh, circulates three times a minute with fan system we have. And then uh, the amount of air exchange is completely up to the person and where they live for, and it's really important to, th- to recognize that where you live makes a big difference. If you live in Phoenix, Arizona and you're, you may be inside of an air-conditioned apartment or house, but it is dry. It's really dry. And so you'd want to have all your vents. We have uh, vent, vents on the, on the upper canopy in the front and the rear, and they're adjustable vent covers that allow you to close them completely or open them. All right. And so uh, and then also with the circulation system, we have what we call dog tags. They're little circular dog tags that open and allow you to bleed air off of the 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 fan system so it's like a little high pressure you know bleed valve that allows air to be bled out of the vivarium so you can exchange air that way as well that's that's pretty um, cool actually that's actually really cool it really really works i mean it's and what makes it work is that you can tune it the way you want it and the way you need it right for your environment you know, we have a, a whole vent in the front, and um, and what I tell people is, if you have, live in a really humid area, leave, make sure the vents are open, and if they're not, you know, uh, you don't live in a humid area, it's really dry, just, you know, put enough leaf litter in front of them so that you block them a little bit, and so that the water coming off that you have in the trough, the little bit of water you have in the trough, is being soaked up into the leaf litter and allows you to humidify that incoming air, right? So that's uh, that's kind of the technical approach for making the humidity inside your terrarium the way you want it. I mean, that definitely, it, that definitely does takes... Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. It, it definitely takes away a lot of the trial and error approach. I mean, with, with mine, I, like I said earlier, I... I cut glass um i do some i do a lot of stuff like that at work and you know i'll take old pieces of glass and i cut them and i'll kind of obstruct like 90 percent or 80 percent of the 
lid of the ones that I have going. And then right, depending right. on the time of year, I might have to put like, um, I might have to cover it a hundred percent. I might have to take a little bit off because right now in the summertime, I've got my frog room has central air. So I keep it around maybe 75 ambient temperature under the lights. It gets maybe about 75, 76 and some of the vivariums. But during the dead of winter, it's, it's, it's dry. And during summer, it's also dry because the, the, the AC pulls all the moisture out of the air. So it, it, it's, it, it is a pain. Like, I mean, I'm just kind of used to it because I've just been doing it for a while. You know, I know I have to move a piece of, a piece of uh, you know, plate glass over like an inch, but it's got to yeah. be much easier to, you know, to, to, you know, have everything in one, you know, one bundle, so to speak, that you can just control everything without having to make major modifications to your system. Yeah, yeah, we we <laughs> when we when I designed this thing, you know, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to keep count of all the pieces. We're just going to do the right job. And when we got done, we had 11 injection molds. Some of them, you know, a, a yard wide and a yard long and a yard high. You know, the base is just this huge mold, for example. And um, and so we have injection molded. Uh, thermoplastic vent covers for the front that move back they slide back and forth and allow you to to dial in that front zone in case you need the front to be a little bit more ventilated and in the back we've got a sliding glass vent that slides back and forth over the across the whole back and you can you can adjust that as well and um and so the design of these thermoplastics was set up is to give as much uh, control to the to the keeper as we possibly could, and have it work for them. You know, make sure that it worked. Now, yeah. I mean, in terms of being, I think I I said it before, but like essentially like like a plug and play, meaning okay, I don't really want to have to cut glass. I don't want to have to drill a bulk. I basically I don't want to have to retrofit, you know, an, an existing terrarium to what I want. You, you, you obviously have all that in one terrarium. Everything is basically there from soup to nuts. Has the right. demand for the, like the plug and play type of vivarium, has that increased as the, as the hobby has kind of grown? You know, I think it has, I think there's a, a, a number of people that want to, uh, you know, invest in this type of terrarium. There's other people that are getting in and just getting their feet wet and learning, you know, like, you know, what's important and what isn't. And eventually I think most people uh, will settle out and say, you know what, this has become what we think is the best design because it enables us to do all this without having to go do all that extra mucking about, you know, um, at least that's what I hope it is. I, we're trying to become what I would call a gold standard. We want to offer the very best platform that we can for for doing this hobby right and so mostly so people can be successful right i don't know about you but when i first started you know i had all these terrariums i was building they were smelling mucky they were they were anaerobic they didn't work very well it was really discouraging and if we can kind of move the hobby to be successful we're beginning people are successful and they're not so discouraged then i think that we've grown the hobby in, in, in a very positive way and that's kind of one of the goals of the company 
it's interesting that you say that because I think that like some people I've had conversations with about, you know, doing builds and whatnot, like a lot of people get really, really intimidated by it and it becomes this monumental task and they do it and it, and it fails for some reason. So it's almost right. like, um, I mean, look, I, I'm not, you know, uh, I don't consider myself an expert on anything. I mean, I've been doing this type of stuff for, I, I like to think a long time, but that doesn't mean I can't learn anything from it. But right. it, it's almost like people who are new and beginners, like people, I, I mean, I guess like myself and there's a couple other people I kind of interact with on different forms and whatnot, but we, we kind of look at it as almost like a hazing process. Like people who are getting into the hobby, it's like, well, if you can't master the build, you really can't master the hobby. And it, it really isn't like a, a good way of thinking because I've had people say, well, listen, I want to get into it. I want to get into dart frogs. I want to get into micro geckos, but I'm intimidated by all the, all the husbandry aspects that go into it. Right. But now it's like, right. you can say, well, uh, you can basically get, a, you know, a, a plug and play system now that will, it'll, it'll take all the guesswork out of it for you. You can basically set this up and you can just, you know, pull the string and let it go. Right. Right. Minus, minus building a background. True. You know, true. Think, that's right. I, minus building a background. I think that these are pretty much plug and play at this point. In fact, I, what I, I tell people and they're, they're, I think they're kind of surprised this is my, my favorite background, for example, right now is a, a pumice rock background. And some people think, Oh, that's advanced. And I'm like, well, actually it's a cheat. <laughs> it's very simple. These, we, we cut these rocks and I'm, I'm not trying to plug in situ's product line at all. I'm just trying to explain why I even offer this stuff on our site. Um, we cut these rocks so that they have a veneer, they create a veneer. And if you uh, scuff the glass or the back of a, the composite panel on our vivarium, you can stick the rock directly onto it. And then, uh, and then while it's, you know, once you get them all stuck, then you fill in the area around it with silicone and then you press some orchiata, fine grade orchiata into onto that silicone between the rocks and, Literally within an hour, you can have a background made. Hmm. I mean, as opposed to days where you're working with this great stuff, right? Yeah, I've, and, I've I've used like miles and miles of great stuff. Yeah, yeah, you get rid of the great stuff. You just say, okay, well, I'm not, I'm never doing great stuff again. And you just stick the rock right directly to the glass, and then fill in with the orchiata, and the next thing you know, it's done. It takes you an hour to do a background. You let it cure for a day, and, and then literally the very next day, you could be planting your vivarium. And so we've kind of migrated to offering uh, the, uh, the, feather, the feather rock or the, the, the pumice rock back, uh, for the backgrounds. And uh, because we think that that inorganic rock doesn't add nutrients into the system, it, it's it's neutral in terms of of nutrients that would cause cyanobacteria or other things to grow. It's not going to become mucky or water laden, and so it's just a superior medium for growing on. And so that's become the um, the standard answer from us when people ask us what kind of background will we recommend. 
And then the other part, which is kind of shocking, is uh, well, he's like, say, well, what would you add? What would you put down for a substrate? And I tell him, I said, well, you know, my best success is just putting down a layer of EpiWeb. And so we put a layer of EpiWeb down. Are you familiar with EpiWeb, Dan? I, I am, but just for anybody who's out there that might be listening, if you could maybe give yeah. us a little bit more of a description. I personally have never used it, but I know I know what it is. Yeah, it's a, what it is is like a, it's a, like a one-inch thick polyester felt. I guess is the best way to describe it. It's this non-woven mat that you can get uh, that plants will grow in. Water droplets will adhere to it. And plants will actually root right into it. Uh, you can't get the roots out. And you can't get the plant separated from it once they do. But it makes an incredible uh, drainage layer. And uh, so what I do is um, put that EpiWeb down. I don't put anything in the trough. I just kind of drape it across the front of the trough so that uh, it's empty. The trough is empty and just has water in it. And then I place rocks and wood inside the vivarium. And wherever the rocks and wood intersect with each other, they create a little pocket usually. And I stuff some ABG only in that pocket. And then I plant the plant in that pocket. And so now what used to be two, three inches of ABG is now a pocket of ABG with a plant in it that's got roots that are absorbing in that specific area. And so now you've essentially gotten rid of all the muck. You have a perfect drainage layer underneath it all. And any of the EpiWeb that might be exposed is covered with leaf, leaf litter and say, okay, we're done. And EpiWeb will also, it, it'll wick water upwards too. Cause I've seen people use it on um, like some people are really, really big into moss and I know moss is kind of intimidating, but People who use the EpiWeb, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons they market it towards people, too, is because it grows moss so well. But I've seen yeah. people do drip walls, and it, it will wick the water up without making it, like, it, it doesn't get all gross. It just will, it'll, it'll retain that moisture there, and it'll allow things like moss to, to, to grow on it, almost like a, um, like a vertical kind of substrate. Right, 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 yeah. So, so the, uh, so the EpiWeb, to me, is like the perfect drainage layer. And, um, and so that's my, those are, that's my best design approach in a vivarium right now. The one that I'm really, really loving is, you know, the, the rock background with the EpiWeb substrate. And then I just clump wood and, and extra, uh, rocks around the base to, to get the height that I want. And, um, you know, the plants are growing amazingly well. And the vivariums are looking beautiful and healthy. And I'm like, okay, well, this may be the right formula, you know, at least for now. <laughs> now. Is there, like, do you have a preference in terms of plants? Like, I like to incorporate, there's really three plants that I use. I'll use, um, I'll use bromeliads. I'll use yeah. pothos because it, it pothos just grows in, in anything. And I'll use, um, right. I'll use uh, you know, different, different, uh, different ficuses. Um, right, right, right. What What are your preferences? You know, I um, I like cool plants. <laughs> I uh, I try not to put bromeliads in every single uh, vivarium. If I have an obligate, 
they will all get bromeliads because that's what they do, right? But if you're not an obligate, you may or may not get bromeliad, you know, depending on what I'm doing, right? Um, uh, I like I like uh, variation in plants. I, uh, I I I don't know about you, but I love being a part of the clubs and doing all of our trades and picking up new plants. There's almost always some kind of a philodendron you know, in my vivarium, whether it's a miniature one or something that grows a little bit more tenaciously, you know, um, I like the, uh, you know, I love the Gisneriads families. They're really spectacular leaf colors. I have what's called a trichodrimonia that I'm trying to get going right now. It's got this big fuzzy leaf to it. And, um, and of course the begonias, I mean, I, I don't know who wouldn't love some of the begonias that are we're starting to find in the hobby now as well. So those are my those are my favorites. Yeah, that's it's a whole. Yeah. I mean, the just the plant aspect of it alone is amazing because you have access to so many different species now that wouldn't have been around. Again, I mean, when I started, all you had was pothos. That was it. You had your choice between pothos or golden pothos. Yeah. <laughs> I actually still have the pothos I have now came from yeah. the original plant that i bought 22 years ago oh my god I've, I've been i've been taking cuttings of it on and off for over 20 years oh my god all right okay well you know on the subject of plants you know we uh, we came out with a water flow system to our uh that we incorporated it's we called it the rio and uh, the main reason I wanted to introduce it is so that we could start to do drip walls, right? And uh, and so I'm I'm in the process of developing this product, and I got my first prototype built to make sure it would work, all work. And I got to the end of it, and I said, "Okay, now what plants do I use?" And I literally was scratching my head, like, you know, I don't know what plants to plant in this because, you know, what can they actually grow on a drip wall? And uh, luckily, we're we're um, really close to uh, Amazon, which has the Amazon spheres, which is probably the most beautiful botanical display I've ever seen in my life is in the Amazon spheres. And uh, some of the guys that are in that uh, work for Amazon that take care of that are in our local club. And so I was able to kind of tap on them and saying, you know, how do we grow plants or how do I grow plants on a drip wall? And they, they point, they said pretty much just, just about anything would work as long as the water is continuously running and it's not, um, stagnant. And, um, so then I said, okay, I'll take that advice. And then the next thing I did, I said, you know, I'm going to go call an expert that grows these plants. So I started calling the, the growers and, um, I said, can you do something like put a drip wall package together for me? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I wonder if other people would want that. And um, as we kind of talked about it, we realized other people would probably want to get be able to buy these as plant packages. So, so we came up with a a a, um, a uh, what we call the collector's reserve project at in situ where. Once a month, we're going to spotlight a grower, and then the, we're going to, those growers are going to offer their packages for these, you know, rare plants that do this sort these sorts of things, like grow on drip walls or grow near a stream or 
or whatever it is so that we can get them to, you know, help people get the plants they need to, to um, build these unique, you know, scenes and, and uh, biotype type of vivariums. Yeah, the drip walls are always impressive. I think that that's one of the things where um, people often don't succeed because, like, just like you said, they might not necessarily be selecting the right plants. They might not be selecting the right material for the drip wall. I mean, right. full disclosure here, I did experiment with a couple of drip walls and some different builds, and I ended up abandoning them because I, I didn't really, uh, I, I overthought it. And I had too much going on. I didn't have the right material. And the, the, the growth I got was not the growth that I wanted. So it, it, it's really what, what boiled down to was it was just, you know, I, I stuck a pump underneath the, uh, the drainage layer, egg crate. And I had a little tube going up. And then afterwards I realized I, I can't get to this pump anymore. Because I put it in this little like two by two area. And then I realized my hands are too big to get in there. So once the, once the pump took a dive, it was over with. But before that, I was just getting, um, uh, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, cyanobacteria, um, everyone, you know, if you're not familiar, it's this, it's, it looks like allergy. People call it blue green allergy, but it's actually a a bacteria that photosynthesizes. So anyone who's had an enclosure that has way too many nutrients in it, that, you know, becomes a big problem. And I still have it in some enclosures because I wasn't careful. But like you alluded to earlier, like with with the pumice, ultimately it depends on what you're putting in there. So if you're giving food to an organism that's bad, that organism is going to grow and it's going to thrive. And that's why my drip wall uh, failed, rather. Okay, from cyanobacteria. In in part, yeah. I mean, it it clogged up the the, the tubing. And Ah. it I had... I had some decent moss that was growing up there, but the, 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 the drip wall didn't spread out far enough. I mean, it only spread out maybe two or three inches. So I had this really nice moss that was growing up that side, but with all the cyanobacteria, it, it made it unsightly and I was scraping it off. The, the tube was getting clogged. I ended up just abandoning the whole thing because that was, that was poorly thought out on my part. That was how I failed. Right. Right. So, yeah. So, here we are. We're talking about these technical problems of that crop up, and how do you solve them? And you, you know, the like for example, but you talked about well, your pump was buried inside. And one of the things we did is we put the pump on the outside of the vivarium, and the tubing. We have a drain so that you can access that pump and replace it if you need to. And um, that was probably one of because you know I've done the same thing. I put the pump on the inside the first time I tried it. You know, six months later, I needed to change it. And it's like, well, good luck with that. And then it's like, well, okay, like any good water feature, you just fill it in. <laughs> if it doesn't yeah, work, yes. Right? <laughs> All right, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. No, you're not alone. That's what everybody does. Yeah. If it doesn't work, just fill it in, right? Uh, the fun part of what I've done with, we've done with the Rio, I've had uh, my drip wall going now for about six months. Uh, constantly, I haven't refilled it or done anything special i turned it on and i do my normal misting schedule which is believe it or not 30 seconds three or four times a day but three times a week i turn the misters on i let them run for five minutes just to get a wash off of the leaves 
you know, you know, on their own, on a regular schedule, three times a week, the leaves get washed off by misting. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it, if there's anything, if the trough is a little low on water, you know, that's a chance for it to regain its, its spill. And so we have a pretty good success uh, rate with uh, the Rio on that kind of a schedule. And, um, you know, we're, we're still too young. We're only six months into this. And I think, you know, as anybody else knows that when you plant a terrarium, it doesn't, it's not a, Oh, Oh, here we go. And three months later, it's perfect. It's usually a good terrarium. If you pick chosen the plants correctly and you're not getting stuff that's growing too fast, it could take up to a year before it finally gets to a point where it's, where it's, you know, what I would call a showpiece. Yeah, yeah. I've I've noticed that. It's funny. I'll go to expos, and and no, you know, not to be disrespectful or critical of anybody at expos, but a lot of times I'll see terrariums that are have like a full terrarium kit for sale for X amount of dollars, and right. I'm looking. I'm like, all right, they just made that up this morning. And anybody who does get a terrarium like that that's pre-made, you're gonna have to go through the whole cycling process and. Right. It depends on what you're going to put in there and all that. And it can take a long time. I mean, I've had terrariums that I've set up. I set a couple up in November and yeah. they're still cycling. I, I have a fungus outbreak in one that I'm just kind of waiting for it to, to run its course. I have to tweak a couple more things, mm-hmm. but it can take a very, very long time. And even like the, the slightest little miscalculation can be, you know, can be a problem. Um, what, what about, what's your thoughts on lighting? I mean, what kind of lighting do you like to use? Okay. So that was another really important thing for us is the lighting is, um, when I was developing this, you know, it took a year to get all this thermoplastics designed and built and, and into production and shipped to Seattle and, and get the facility stood up and get it running. You know, that was a whole year's project. And I knew it would be a big project. So what I decided to do is to tap on uh, my friend Kurt Jensen at um, at Spectral Designs. Kurt's been developing lights for terrariums for years now. I said, Kurt, you know, I want to do this project. Would you mind handling the light part of it? So, um, so he took on the lights in terms of the LEDs and the light harnesses and helping me get lined out with all the materials we need so that uh, now, you know, we make the lights here, but he supplies all the bits and pieces for us. And he made sure that the lighting was correct. And when I say make sure it was correct, you know, he was spot on. We have the right mix of red and blue and warm white and white and we get some incredible par values. You know, if you're if you're growing a high light orchid, it needs par of about 250, and we get that up at the top of the vivarium, about six inches from the top, right where you would want an orchid to grow. And then if you want a low light orchid, you'd want it to be down about 150, and or to 100, and that's what we get at the bottom of the vivarium. And uh, and so if you you can dial the light intensity with our design. We give you a dimmer or if you want, you can get the, an apex controlled uh, power supply that we can, we sell. And then that allows you to do the automatic dimming and, and whatnot. But 
typically we set the light intensity for our our plants at about half of what can actually be output by the lights because they're actually really strong lights you know and so you have a whole whole spectrum of things you can grow depending on what it is you like you know whether it's high intensity light stuff or if it's low intensity you know i mean i think that that's one of the things that a lot of people um, there's a lot of things that people talk about and, and a lot of it is usually build related in terms of like raw materials like right well are we using everywhere are we using polyurethane foam they call it right. so you know but a lot of people neglect lighting and i found that like I mean, it's not to sound like you know, self-righteous or anything, but the more money I spend on a quality light, the better the results. Right. So the lighting yeah, I have yeah. now, I I don't know what the par value is, but these aren't these are forty breeder size enclosures. Well, actually, are they they are forty breeders, but um, I went also went with a certain color temperature. I went with around seventy five hundred K, and just for anybody out there who's not really too for, I mean, I'm not a lighting expert by any means, but. Um, it kind of refers to like what your eyes perceive the the color temperature at. So, yeah, depending that's really on, bright white. That's a really bright white. Yes, yes. it is. And yeah. um, I get a lot more visibility and a lot more plant growth in those enclosures as opposed to other ones. And there's actually two enclosures that actually share. Um, I think it's like a 24 inch light that I kind of place between the two, and everything grows right in the middle where those two well, where that light is so it's very very easy to kind of forget like all right well i can go on amazon i can get an led light for like 20 bucks yeah i've done that and you know what it looks like crap it looks lousy and the plants won't grow yeah exactly <laughs> don't, exactly don't forget that <laughs> or, or they're gonna grow up like abysmally slow so yeah i i was before we did this i was using uh the planted 24 7 lights because I liked being able to dial in the color temperature I wanted. But then I realized, oh, you know, I spent $120 on this light and it won't grow the plants. I need another one. And I had to go down and I'd buy another, uh, another LED strip and put it on the top of the vivarium as well. So I had two of them, right? And uh, finally, you get the plants to grow. And then I realized, you know... You, you don't save any money when you when you're skimping on the LEDs. You just don't. You yeah. Know? Oh yeah. 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 Now, yeah. I mean, you do you cater to a lot of like orchid keepers because I mean, we do. In actually. my in my opinion, keeping orchids is actually harder than keeping dart frogs. We do cater to a lot of orchid people. In fact, this week, as part of our uh, our you know, regular promotional activities. We, we posted a picture of an orchidarium I built about six months ago with our Alto. This is our new tall vivarium. And, uh, it has about 30 different species of orchids in it. And it's just a showpiece. All right. It took six months to grow in, you know, it wasn't, I couldn't have taken a picture of it six months ago. It'll look like crap. Right. So here we are six months later and, I have never been so successful in growing orchids as I am in that terrarium. It is just, everything is growing and it's blooming and it's really just wonderful to see and watch, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had, so. I introduced an orchid into one of my builds and 
I, I'm a horrible person. I don't know. I, I don't even know the genus. I know nothing about orchids other than I see them for sale. This was a Home Depot orchid. I put right. very, I, I put very little <laughs> to no thought into it. And it's, it's still alive, but it, it flowered once. And then that was the end of it. And it, it's still holding on. It's just not, it, it's not really like flourishing the way I would have liked it. But again, yeah. that was, I did not properly plan for that plant's requirements. You know, I tell you what, to get any orchid to grow, you have to understand the orchid that you're putting in the terrarium. They need to be warm. They need to be being wet, right? Um, you have to learn how to plant them so that they're not soggy, you know. Um, and, you know, in our case, I, I would say that the circulation system and the lights really made a difference, right? They re the circulation system, especially in the lights together, made a difference. So interesting. Now, I mean, besides orchids, I mean, what what's your market? I mean, are you dealing with primarily with people who are doing dart frogs, or like what like what other species out there are people you know, gravitating towards? It's really interesting. Our market. I'll just tell you about who our market is. The people that have been in the hobby for a long time and know the problems tend to buy from us, right? Because they recognize all the problems. They go, okay, you, you solved all these. I'm tired of trying to do all this myself. I just want, want to buy something that works. And so we get a lot of customers with a lot of experience. And uh, I'm really grateful for them because they kind of spread the word that it works. Um but then we also get a lot of people that are, uh, you know, they're in apartments and they don't have access to a shop and they want something to just make work without a whole lot of effort. And, uh, and so these terrariums really do that, you know, and then, and then also, I don't know if you've seen our site, but we sell these tower systems so that they make the terrariums furniture. Yeah. I have seen so, that. Yeah. Yeah, and so now you've got a, a terrarium, a stack of two terrariums in your living room, and it looks like a piece of furniture that's intentionally designed and built for your living room so that you can you can look at it like you would a, an aquarium or uh, or anything else that, that you would like to see, you know. And I, I imagine, you know, people that have, you know, really expensive frogs that are their favorites, you know, putting them right there and so that in their living room so they can see them, you know, as opposed to burying them in a frog room where they never get to see them. No, it's, that's very, that's very true. I mean, on, on a personal level, my, my frog room, it basically takes up, it's not really a room. It's half of my basement and my, <laughs> my, my kids have one half and I have the other half and I'm very, very protective of it. But I, I ended up building a, um, uh, I'm kind of thinking about how to describe it. Almost like some cabinetry that holds four 40 breeders. And originally my plan was to have two dart frog vivariums on top and to have two um, black water tanks underneath. And I one of the black water tanks, just it, it kind of failed over time. One of them I still have going. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm a big stickler for symmetry. I, I like things to be symmetrical i like and i'm just kind of compulsive when it comes to that stuff but it, it is really nice to have a piece that looks like it's there with purpose 
you yeah. know, to, to have a centerpiece. I mean, I liken the hobby a lot to um, keeping tropical fish, keeping saltwater aquariums. You, you want something that's really going to show off how much of an interest you take in these living things. And to have something that looks like it belongs there rather than just something sitting on top of a cabinet, which which I have also. I mean, I have tanks stashed everywhere. But, right. I mean, I've been begging my wife. I said, look, can I do a real, you know, a showpiece vivarium, you know, upstairs in the hallway? And she goes, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to argue with it. I have half the basement. I've staked out some pretty prime real estate. But, um, you know, she doesn't want to deal with, like, the, 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 the rogue fruit flies and whatever and whatnot. But, I, I, right. you know, it's, it's, she's very dear to me. She lets me do so much. So I'm not going to make an issue out of it. But um, it, it is definitely nice having, a sh- like, a showpiece vivarium. You know, Dan, I have to say, you know, on that topic, that um, we have customers tell us that our terrariums are the only terrariums their spouse lets in the house because they don't leak fruit flies. That, that was going to be my <laughs> next question. They, they, we can't say they don't leak fruit flies. You know, you just have to erase me saying that, right? Sure. Uh, why not? <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> we talked about this before. This is all. But, but, this is all off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about. It. But my point though is that we work really hard to close up all those little holes, and so we can't say they're fruit fly proof, but they certainly do. You know, keep them in check. They're it's close. I mean, yeah, it's very close. I mean that's yeah. also a big that's a big deterrent for people is is the fruit flies and oh yeah I mean obviously I'm I'm in a you know I'm my area is in a basement mm. I don't have a tremendous amount of of I can't open a window whatnot so and it's humid down there to an extent down by you know it's I get I actually get a humidity gradient where it's you know it's really humid and cool by the floor I actually keep certain species down lower like I keep my um, my Theliaderma corticale, my Vietnamese mossy frogs, I keep them down in the cooler section because it's you know it's humid there and it stays around around 68, 70 degrees, which is yeah, what yeah. I like. Sure. But sure. you know that also I, I get a lot of fruit flies that just sort of hang out, and of course with the humidity I, I get spiders. Yeah, yeah, which that's is, the other thing. Yeah, yeah. and um, once the fruit flies are loose, so are the spiders, right? Yeah, and I have I, I touched on this in a previous episode. I kind of have a, a I keep tarantulas. And I'm tolerant of the house spiders because they get rid of the fruit, the fruit flies. But after a while, now I'm finding them in the terrariums with the fruit flies. So, oh yeah, it, it's yeah, that's... it's definitely a nuisance. And I think that is one of the things that will ultimately d- deter people to the hobby is just, you know, having extra fruit that's, flies just hanging around. That you know, the spiders will eat your young frogs too. If you have obligates, the spiders will eat the the babies. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's so, interesting. So you know, getting keeping the spiders out is a big deal. And so the biggest the biggest the biggest obstacle to keeping spiders out is keeping fruit flies from escaping. And so we we've tried really hard to make that happen. I think we're, we've been successful at it because we don't have fruit flies crawling around here in this in in our in our shop. And our pe- people that have our vivariums tell us that they don't have problems with them. Interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Now, um, do you have a favorite species of frog that you keep? Like, I mean, what's what's your go-to species? You know, my favorite species of all time are the Sarancis Highlands. 
And uh, the reason for that is because I went to Peru to find their habitat. And I got to, to, to that area. I met the villagers that used to hunt them, literally to extinction. And I realized they're not going to go back into the wild because the, the people there would just not respect them. And so anything you would do to restore them would cause them essentially to be, you know, uh, you know, exploited again. So, um, so to me, they're precious. These, these frogs that we have, these highlands that we have in the hobby are precious. And that, and once they're gone in the hobby, they're gone from the world. So, uh, I really, uh, make an effort to try and keep that my my breeding group healthy and i i love them i just think they're awesome <laughs> yeah every everyone has that one species that they're really really attached to and it's interesting yeah. because you know had you asked that question a while back it would have been probably like probably something tinctorious um yeah i mean yeah. my my favorite tinctorious is honestly is my patricia and you know it's yeah, funny. Yeah. No one, yeah. no one, no one cares about. It. Well, I mean, people do, but um, well, they're they're great frogs. Yeah, I mean, you know the. I mean, in, in terms of frogs, you know that there's nothing like an azurius. Yeah. Right? Or yeah. or you know they're or you know a terribilis or the leucamellas. They're they're all great frogs because they they're bold. You can see them. You know, and they interact with you. All these other esoteric breeds are the Patricias, all these other ex, ex, es, esoteric breeds and species of frogs are hiders and they're hard to find and hard to breed. And it's they it, make it, you crazy. It, yeah, it's, it's funny because, you know, you ask people that question now, you're going to get a lot of thumbnails and a lot of obligates. And, yeah. you know, going back, I remember like when I was just, you know, sort of getting back into dart frogs. I came, I'm like, what is all this? Where did it come? Where did it come from? <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's, I feel like people who are really serious about the hobby tend to, um, or at least, you know, a lot of the conversations that I've had, a lot of people starting out with, with thumbnails and obligates and, it's not, I mean, they I used guess, to be the hard ones. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I still have that, that kind of, um, that preconceived notion in my head, but now you have people, I mean, I'm 41. There are people in their twenties and thirties who are starting out with, with obligates or starting out with thumbnails and not as, I mean, I'm still intimidated because when they first came out, it was like, they were really difficult to take care of. And now people have sort of kind of dialed in on their care more where it's, you know, yes, a beginner or, or intermediate can handle them. And they're actually yeah. people who are drawn to them as opposed to other species. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's, uh, you know, it's, it's who knows what draws people to different species, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And it's funny because you it, it, you can never have enough. I mean, you know, it's it's people are ah, tinctorious are boring, tinctorious are boring, and now like you'll get a new locale coming, and everybody's like salivating for it. Um, right, right. I yeah. mean, it's interesting, you know, um, you know, just before we kind of wrap up, I just wanted to touch on you know the role of conservation in the hobby. Now, you're you're um, 
Cyrencius, obviously you said that, you know, you, you have a personal attraction to them because they're, they're essentially, they are in a substantial, yeah, they're, they're in substantial danger. Right. Well, they are, they're, they're extinct in the wild. So it's, I mean, nobody has found them in 15 years Mm -hmm. in the wild, nobody. And, uh, so there's, I mean, they, they could still be there in some really remote part of that area, but nobody has seen them. I mean, it's, it's, it's that ethical dilemma and, you know, anybody who's listened to like enough episodes of the podcast knows that I don't believe in a barrier between hobbyists and conservationists and ecologists. I think that there has to be a balance. There has to be a common ground because to have these two universes at odds with each other is not going to accomplish anything. And then you you have to consider the fact that ethically breeding species that are extinct in the wild. I mean, we really don't have much of a, much of a choice. I mean, people will, will, people have different arguments. I've heard people say that they would rather that a species goes completely extinct rather than have it exist solely in captivity. I've heard people say that, species should be reintroduced from captive populations. I've heard every different argument on it. I don't think we'll ever have an answer to it. But what's interesting is take the axolotl, which is for all intents and purposes extinct in the wild, yet they are incredibly popular in captivity. They're used as a model organism. So yes, it it is possible. I mean, it presents all sorts of ethical dilemmas and whatnot. And I mean, people can argue until they're blue in the face. I don't like to start controversy. I don't like to start arguments, but it's, it is sad knowing that some of these species that we really, really cherish, we've only found out about them after it's too late and to have them in captivity is, it's a mixed blessing. It's sad because no one will ever encounter them in their, nat- in their natural habitat, but they are still around as, a, as a, a remnant of that species, enough to just say, you know, well, this is what we could have had had we been more careful. Look at it, see how right. beautiful it is, admire it, and realize that there are many more like it that are facing a similar fate. I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I I think well, in order to have conservation, you have to first understand value. And you can't understand value unless you experience it. And so we have this vicious circle of you can't have conservation until you have an experience. And I so I think that, you know, if you are serious about the hobby and you you find yourself wanting to keep these animals, take it upon yourself to go visit them in the wild and go see them and join and create an appreciation. And when you do that, spending a little money in that area where, uh, where you do this ecotourism, you know, by seeing these animals, you help support their, their, um, their well-being. you know, because people understand that they have value and so they'll protect them. You know, so no, I think that's, that's a good point. I mean, I mean, just just go a little that one step further and and go see them in the wild and make an effort to support the jurisdictions that house them or, you know, where they live. So, no, I think that that's that's a great way of thinking about it. I mean, yeah. you know, every everything in the world, no matter what it is, can be exploited. 
regardless of what it is. I mean, fresh air can be exploited. So I think that, you know, to, to be able to go to some of these areas, and it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a, like an, an exotic area outside the country, but if no. you're going to an area that the the population there relies heavily on the harvesting or the, whatever you exploit, whatever you want to call it, uh, they have a relationship with animals that is necessary for their financial survival. It's a fact. It's let's not let's not debate it or you know agree that it's not there. It is there. But if you can encourage a group of people to sustainably and you know um, appropriately exploit that species in a good way, it's going to do much more for conservation than, you know, rather than having people harvest species from the wild, which, which obviously has its purposes. I don't want to get into that, but, um, if you, if people are showing you where the animals are and you're taking pictures of them and then leaving, that is a much more sustainable and appropriate way of quote unquote, you know, exploiting things then going and field collecting them and then selling them somewhere in, you know, it's just, there are ways to do things responsibly and there's no right or there's, well, there are right or wrongs, but there's no real one clear answer to it. I'm, I'm sure I'm burying myself further, <laughs> the further I get into this debate. You know, um, I'd have been really quiet because I know this is a controversial subject. Yeah. Like, yeah. Maybe we should just, just leave it at that. But... Got their, everybody's got their, their, their ax to grind on this. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, but... that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the you know, the, the purpose of this is I, I want people to, you know, have these discussions and, and share these experiences because, you know, it's, this is, this is not a closed system here. You know, there has to be exchanges and people are going to have differences of opinion, but, you know, let's be honest, conservation and the hobby, they, they have to have some sort of cooperation here. And, Obviously, I mean, believe it or not, the more people that I speak to who are involved with, you know, with the hobby in terms of, you know, having a business, etc., they only want to deal with captive bred individuals. I mean, obviously, wild caught individuals have a role because you want to establish, um, you know, you want to have new blood come in, etc. I mean, obviously, if it's done in a way that's responsible and it's appropriate, this is in no way to discredit anybody who does that. If I've twisted somebody the wrong way i apologize that was not my intention but you know we we have to accept the fact that there's going to be times where you know the hobby and conservation is going to be at odds but hopefully that will be a thing of the past if we move forward in the right direction well i think you're kind of right spot on with wild caught or versus captive bread i think the the real the real aim for the hobby should be to do captive bread whenever possible and responsibly deal with wild caught through the permitting processes in the various countries that involve, you know, taking a small number of animals so that they can be captive bred and then released into a population of a hobby, you know, as captive bred, as opposed to wild caught animals. To me, that's the the responsible way of, of, enjoying these animals and raising awareness you know until zoos in the 60s had animals in cages nobody knew about these animals enough to care about them right and then of course as awareness raises you say gosh you know putting an animal in a cage what a horrible way of dealing with this you know over the years our culture has set up ways of making sure animals are better treated and um, 
So, and ethically, I don't know, you know, whatever ethically means, but to me, it means, you know, doing the very best you possibly can. Right. So. Mm, absolutely. It's, it's, it's not something that we're going to, we're going to solve overnight, but hopefully we're taking the right, the right directions. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Bill, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. Um, Bill, just, just give us your website real quick. Yeah, yeah. It's very uh, simple. It's uh, www.insitu, I-N-S-I-T-U, ecosystems.com, right? And, uh, you know, anybody that wants to visit or to contact me, feel free. There's contact on the website. And I usually answer in the morning and afternoons after, you know, I I get up, uh, do early morning stuff, then we have a work day, and then I take care of more communication at night just before I leave. So it's um, feel free to call and feel free to send us a message anytime. Excellent. Bill, thank you so much. So everyone, thank you so much for joining me. Um, hope to hear, well, I, I always say that I hope to hear from you again soon. Why do I do that? No, I hope you hear from me again soon. All right. Looking forward to episode 10. Thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate it. I'm having a lot of fun today. Thanks, Thanks. a lot, Bye-bye. Bill. Always a pleasure. All right, everyone, meet up with me again, episode 10.